Well, John chapter 7, would you look over there, John chapter 7. Sidlow Baxter, uh, past pastor and author, as you're turning to John 7, said this about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it just resonates true. He said that fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not merely come to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not merely come to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not merely come to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not merely come to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The gospel message, in essence, was himself. And we come this morning to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, one of the most glorious invitations in all of the Scripture. It is yet another invitation of the Savior regarding his redeeming work. And we've heard other invitations in John chapter 3 after the discussion with Nicodemus. We heard other invitations in John chapter 5 after the healing at the pool of the man who was on a stretcher. And then we heard other invitations just last chapter in chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. All of those invitations give a glorious call to salvation, a wonderful invitation to come to Christ. Jesus said, come to me, receive me, believe me. And we come here this morning to possibly one of the greatest invitations in all of the scripture. I suppose they're all great. That would be true. They're all bound up in the word of God. But it could be that this one just rings true in a a fresh way. And though Israel, as we step into John chapter 7, many did not believe him. Many did not trust him. He continues to plead with them. He continues to love them. He continues to offer himself to them. He is ever in this passage so merciful and gracious. Ever so patient with people. And maybe even this morning, if that's the case, if you've walked in, uh, I would pray that you would not put him off. Even if you have refused him in the past, may it be that this would be the day of your salvation. Maybe some of you have come in and you're a guest and you've rejected him. But listen, the Savior back then and the Savior now persuades you to come to him. He pleads even with you. He even is after your own heart that you would come to him in a personal way. Let me read the text. It's just three verses as we march on in John 7 verse 37. Of course, he's at the feast and verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, or not yet, or had been not been given, but because Jesus was not yet, it says there in the text, glorified. And so we come to this place. 
Now, I remind you as we walk into this text regarding the context, it of course is, as we've been looking and studying in chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, or they called it the Feast of Booths. They came into Jerusalem for a week and built these tents around the the outer uh, gate, if you will, around the outer wall and inside the wall and on makeshift houses and so forth. They made these tents or they made these booths and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what they were doing is celebrating God's protection of them during their wilderness wanderings. They commemorated this feast with a celebration and all of this is spoken about richly in the Old Testament. If you want to look more, you can find it in Leviticus chapter 23. 23. Now as we've been looking here, as we come into verse 37, we were studying chapter 7 verses 15 through 36. And in that section of scripture, we were looking at three scenes, we were looking at three questions, and then we were examining three profound answers. The first question was in 15 through 24, where was Jesus trained? In other words, how could he speak in such a way he had no rabbi, he had no instruction? And so they questioned his training. Then secondly, where was Jesus from in verses 25 through 31? They knew him. They knew he was from Galilee. How, where, what was his origin? And then we left off last week. Where is Jesus going in verses 32 through 36? And look down at verse 36. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now, the, the text there in 36 just abruptly ends. And then as you look again down at verse 37... On the last day of the feast. Let me see if I can just explain what took place. I've mentioned to you that the feast was seven days. In some particular text in the Old Testament, there would be an eighth day. And so when it says on the seventh day, or on the last day, excuse me, it is either on the last day known as the seventh day, or on the last day which would sometimes be spoken of in the scripture on the eighth day. And it's really hard to be conclusive if it's one or the other. But we do know this from the text. It's the last day. And if you can picture this, they've been there for a week. They've traveled in. They're in these makeshift booths and tents. And it's the closing ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember this feast, out of all the feasts, was one of celebration. And so on the last day, it tended to be a festival. It was very climatic for the nation of Israel. In fact, look at the text again at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day. And so if you can picture this, they've gathered for a week. They've been in booths. They've been in tents. There's been ceremonies. There's been the light ceremony and so forth. And it was on that last day. Look at the text again in verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out. Now just stop there just for a second. Rabbis, as you well know, would normally, what? Sit. And they would sit in the temple and he was identified before as a rabbi and he would come into the temple and other gospels and the position of a teacher, the position of a rabbi would be that they would sit. But not in this case. It says, look at the text, that he stood up 
and he cried out. So I don't think when he stood up, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. No, this is rather dramatic here. It was on the last day, the climactic day, the last day of the feast, the great day that he stood up and he probably said something like this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He cried out. And the word there for cried out is a very strong word, meaning that he spoke at the the top of his voice. So, beloved, if you can picture this, God stood up to speak. God, if you will, raises his voice. And I think when it says that he cried out, he raised his voice and he cried out with that exclamation, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, beloved, if you can just see this for this moment, he is pleading with them. He is loving them. God is standing before them. He is beseeching them in the person of Christ to come to him. They may never hear him again. They may, in fact, die in their sins. You may never hear the gospel again, even this morning. And there is a beseeching and a pleading and a wooing of the Savior. I mean, in some sense, for the first time, the prophet did not begin, thus saith the Lord, for this prophet was the prophet. He didn't have to say, thus saith the Lord. He was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He was the word of God become flesh. And he gave this gospel invitation, okay? And so what I want to do here briefly with you this morning in this gospel invitation is just look at two disclosures that brings the person of Christ into clear view, okay? He's going to disclose, if you will, himself, two types of disclosure that brings the person of Christ into clear view. What Jesus will do first is present an analogy. He's going to show you an analogy, a metaphor, but the analogy is rich. The analogy is a true one. It's not just a metaphor externally. It has rich, symbolic, biblical wisdom in it. Then secondly, the second disclosure, he's going to provide an application, okay, that reveals his person to us and our response to him. So, beloved, here it is. He's going to present an analogy, then he's going to provide an application, and that application reveals his person to us and our response to him. It's not hard to understand. Let's look first at he presents an analogy, And the analogy is, as you might be wondering in verse 37, why would he stand up? Why would he cry out? And what's the meaning of, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink? Well, there's a rich, rich symbolism and a really a deep meaning here. What is the meaning of the phrase, if anyone thirst? Go back on a journey with me just for a moment here because I'm going to spend the majority of our time on the application. But before you can get to that, we have to understand the analogy that he is presenting. The Jewish people, the nation, had a really, biblically, it was a wonderful water ritual that they celebrated. They celebrated this water ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And they celebrated it in a unique way on the last day, on the great day. But even before that last day, if you can picture this, every day for seven days at the Feast of the Tabernacle, at the Feast of Tabernacle, the high priest and a people who would be in procession with him, the priest would carry a golden picture filled with, and then he filled that picture with water at the pool of Siloam, okay? So if you can just picture the priest is going to leave the temple, he's carrying this golden picture, he takes this golden picture with a procession of people in tow with him, they go down to the pool of Siloam, he dips this golden picture into the water there, he fills it, and then he comes back to the temple. And as the high priest and the procession came back into the temple, as they were entering into the temple at the south part of the gate, the water gate, three trumpet blasts would ring out to mark this joyous occasion. And then as he went into the temple, the water then would be poured through a funnel, um, kind of at which which led the base of the altar to the burnt offering. In other words, there was a funnel. He'd come back. There was a procession. He'd take that water. He'd pour it into the funnel. It would go down into the base of the altar for the burnt offering. Then, as the crowds gathered, the priest then would walk around the altar with the water container while the temple choir sang what was known as the Hallel. The Hallel is a group, it's a series of hymns, if you will. And it's found in Psalm 113 to 118. So as he'd pour it out, then he would walk around the altar. They would be singing the praises or the hymns of Hallel. Hallel from the Hebrew term, which would mean hallelujah. And then when this choir reached, if you will, Psalm 118, this is what they would say in their history. Every male who was in that procession would kind of shake, or we could say shook, okay, a willow and myrtle twig that was tied in his right hand, while in his left hand he raised a piece of citrus fruit, okay? It was a sign of the ingathered harvest. And then in unison, they would all cry out, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. They would cite that three times. So there was an elaborate water ritual that they went through on this last day. In John chapter 8, we'll get there. Just next chapter, when he said, I am the light of the world, they had also a ceremony of light. And you'll see how that comes in. But you say, Scott, why did they do this? Okay, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay, it's the last day. It's the great day. It's the climactic day. They did that with the water, but why? And, and here, the ceremony highlighted three important aspects for the nation. I'll be brief here. First, the ceremony recalled the Exodus. It went even back before the wilderness, but it recalled the Exodus when God provided uh, for Israel by making water flow out of a what? Out of a rock. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 17, they were grumbling. They were complaining. They were saying, Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? And remember, God told Moses to speak to the rock. 
And as he spoke to the rock in Exodus chapter 17, the water began to flow out of the rock. And so this ceremony now in the temple was remembering first when God provided the water for them. In fact, it says in Exodus 17, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and out came water. And you can see that cited in Exodus 17, 6. You could see it in Numbers 20, verse 8, and all of Numbers chapter 20. So number one, it was a celebration. They did this water ritual ceremony for them to remember how God provided for their physical thirst out of the Old Testament. But secondly, and you don't want to miss this, this water ritual thanked God, and we will understand this, for the harvest. And as they would thank God for the harvest, they were petitioning him for abundant rains in the year to come. In fact, this feast, as I mentioned to you weeks back, was in October. And so as they gathered for the Feast of Tabernacles, they not only looked back for God providing for them when they were physically thirsty, but secondly, it was an opportunity for them to petition and thank God as the rainy season would be coming. In fact, their climate, as I hope to show you in a few years, is very, very similar to ours. And so the feast preceded the rainy season, and they depended on rain. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm going to see if we have this. In the scripture, does the next slide come up? In the book of Zechariah, here it is. This is in the millennial kingdom. You can read this on your own. So it's not even history. This is future history in the millennial kingdom. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem at the end times shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. So it's interesting. We're studying history there, but this will come into play during that section, really during the seven-year tribulation, and to keep the feast of booths and then into the millennial kingdom. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be what? No rain on them. And so as these people were gathering, they were not only thanking the Lord for the rain that would come, but even into the future kingdom, there's going to be an aspect where this is still inaugurated in that thousand-year reign. So this ceremony was a time of remembrance. It was a time of great joy as the nation remembered God's provision of rain. And then just thirdly, uh, it looked forward, someone as I mentioned there, to the coming age of Messiah. When the Messiah would come, there's statements all over the scripture like Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And there is a rich biblical imagery, if you will, on the age to come where the Messiah would rule. And this anticipated that age. So, beloved, there's the context. There on the last day, that's the analogy. He's calling back, and can you just see the Messiah at that point? Not sitting, but standing up and crying out and taking that analogy that they had celebrated, and it was a time of great joy, and then pinning it to himself, because there's more than just the analogy. Our Lord Jesus Christ would use this water ceremony 
as an object lesson. Certainly, the rock came from the, the rock came the water. Certainly, they were thankful for the harvest. Certainly, they were looking to the future messianic age. But it was then on the last day, as the people proceeded, and if you will, as the procession was going around the altar, they would do that seven times amid the singing and amid the rejoicing. Now, we can't be quite clear, but I think it was right then when that was going on that he stood up probably in the outer courtyard and cried out, if any man is thirsty, come to me and drink. Now, what does this invitation point to practically? I mean, what does that phrase mean? Look down again in the scripture when it says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. I'm going to take you from Jesus presenting the analogy to here, secondly, Jesus provides an application for us. It's as true now as it was true then, but he provides an application. What our Lord is doing here, and even this morning, is inviting thirsty souls to come to him for spiritual life, for life-sustaining water that brings eternal life. Beloved, here's, the, here's where it becomes true to us. As God brought the water from the rock, Jesus not only stands and declares himself to be not only the provision of water, but he's also the provider of water. In fact, Paul will tell you in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. And so, beloved, as the water brought from the pool of Siloam was only a symbol then of the greater reality brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, here's what Jesus is saying on that last day of the feast. It's almost as though he's saying, do you not realize that this water points to me. I am the source of joy. I am the source of life. It is bound up in me. Now look at the statement a little bit more carefully. Dig in just a little bit more with me. You've seen this before. You've heard this before. If anyone thirst, he says. Now just stop there for a moment because we're digging a little bit. What does the text mean? What did Jesus mean when he stood up and said that. Well, on the one hand, I would say just immediately out of the gate here, it's a very inclusive offer, if anyone, and yet at the same time, it's a very exclusive offer. It's inclusive in this sense, that he comes on the scene, he stands up that day, he cries out, if anyone comes to me, In other words, this is not for a specially designated group of people only like the Jews. And just as we've been traveling through John's gospel, he makes that invitation of the gospel very inclusive, if you will. If anyone comes to me. In fact, look down at verse 38 now. Whoever believes in me. In other words, it's inclusive. But at the same time, It is very exclusive as it can be. In other words, it is directed towards a people who are thirsty for God. In other words, he says, you must come to me. Now, just for a moment, this gospel invitation that he gives is a wonderful summary of the gospel. And if you're being a, uh, if you're bound up and you're an English student in the grammar, there are three verbs here. Okay, 
Three verbs, okay? You say, what are they? Well, you can see them. If anyone thirst, let him come to me, secondly, and let him drink. Let's look at those just for a moment. He says, if anyone thirst, and obviously he's not talking about here physical thirst. Our Lord Jesus, when he gives the gospel invitation, he's talking about a spiritual thirst. He's talking about a people who need to recognize the need of salvation. Certainly, maybe in some sense, we understand that thirst is painful. And likewise, in the spiritual analogy here, thirst, spiritual thirst, is an empty vacuum that must be filled. There is a need. There is a need spiritually. There is a need to be here, in this sense, thirsty. And so on the one hand, he opens it up inclusively, if anyone thirsts, but it's exclusive in the sense that you must be thirsty. You must be. And so he's calling out to people. He could be calling out to you this morning. This thirst here that he's talking about is a craving. It is a constant craving. And here is a thirsty soul from the deliverance, if you will, from the power of sin. In other words, your soul is parched. It would be like when Jesus came at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, as he stands up on that day, he says, there are souls that are empty. And so here this thirst is a recognition of the desperate situation that people find themselves in apart from Christ. He's not talking about being thirsty for morality. He's not talking about a people who are thirsty for good to be a good person. He's not talking about being externally a religious person, but he's talking about the ones who recognize Christ for who he is and for what he can do. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. This, of course, is what the Lord begins to work in your heart and in my heart. This is what the gospel does, does it not, beloved? It sends you bankrupt to God. You get to the point where you become to the end of yourself. You begin to see that there's no other alternative, no other solution. You have within your heart a thirsting after God to be made like him, to be righteous before him. But you realize you can't get that on your own. And so he creates, does he not, this this emptiness. The Lord does that and he creates thirst in your life and Jesus stands up and he does so today and he says if any man or any woman is thirsty, he's inviting those people who want to be made right to a relationship with their God. But look what he says secondly there. He says if anyone thirst, he says let him come to me. I love that. In other words, trust me. Come to me. Come to the one to look, look to him, if you will. Look to the one who was just, who died, if you will, for the unjust to bring us to God. The one who died and who rose again and after 40 days ascended into glory. It is an invitation to run to the source. The source, certainly the water came out of the rock. But Jesus is saying, I am that rock. And you need to come to me. In fact, it was somewhat believed in uh, Jewish, uh, it's not in scripture, but they actually believed in the nation after that water came from the rock, that the Jewish people gathered that rock and took them, took that rock everywhere they went in their wilderness wanderings. But Jesus is saying, listen, you come to the source. 
You recognize your spiritual thirst. You come to me. You run to the very source. The one who sits, if you will, right now at the right hand of God in authority. You come to the one who offers forgiveness. You come to the one who pardons you from all of your sins. And see, what this does is when he says, he who is thirsty, let him come to me, it describes our approach to him. In other words, this is what the gospel begins to do in your life. Do you remember that in your life? He begins to expose your need. He begins to expose your thirst. He begins to expose your shallowness. He begins to expose the sins that separate you from God. He creates a thirst inside of you. And then now he puts the gospel in here and he says, if you're going to thirst, then you need to come to me. And again, you're coming to the person of Christ. You're not coming to a church service. You're not coming to a ceremony. You're not coming to a a sacrament, if you will. You're coming with all your heart, Christ says to me. In other words, he will meet your deepest. He will meet your greatest need. This is the gospel invitation, is it not? In other words, it's inclusive, it's open for everyone, but it's exclusive, it's recognizing there's a great need in your heart for a relationship with God. In other words, beloved, it's enough for me to say that salvation is a person. It is bound up in Jesus Christ. He is the bread of heaven. And now he's declaring himself to be the living water. He is the lamb slain for you. He is your only hope. He and he alone. And here would be the petition, you must come to him. In other words, he's the only solution. He's the only hope we have. He's the only source, if you will, of eternal life. He is the only one that can satisfy. And to do that then, beloved, it just implies this. You abandon the world. You abandon your sinful relationship. You abandon your sin. You abandon your selfishness. And in exchange for your own love for yourself, you come to the one who gives you that living water. And I ask you, I just stop. Have you done so? Have you done so this morning? Because there is no other plan. And it could be that you're not spiritually thirsty. And so maybe that's our prayer for you. It could be that you have another plan, another alternative, another lifestyle, another friend, and another relationship, or you're waiting to get out of your home, whatever it is. But listen, I warn you, you shall die in your sins. But Jesus is pleading here. Jesus is calling. He stands up on that last day as they poured the physical water, if you will, into that funnel and went down to the base of the altar. In the midst of that, we believe, he stands up and cries, he who is thirsty, come to me. It is an exclusive offer to those who come to the very source. And then thirdly, you can see it there. He says, let him come to me and drink. So what do you mean drink? It means to appropriate him by faith is the thought. Receive what he offers. Be satisfied in him alone. He is the one who gives eternal life. And there's so many connections with this statement of Jesus in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 55, 1, come, very similar. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. But there's that invitation in the Old Testament. Look back just for a moment in John chapter 4. Remember that rich analogy there, and maybe it will highlight this. But in John chapter 4, in verse 10, 
Remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and Jesus answered her in 410, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's the well water. But whoever, verse 14, drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Only he can give that water. Only he can satisfy. Look over at John chapter 6, a similar statement. Remember when we were in John chapter 6 in the context of him being the bread of life. But in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never, what? Thirst. And so, beloved, just as they waited for the manna that came in the Old Testament, and Jesus now in the New said, I am the bread of life. They had their water rituals in the Old Testament, and now he's saying, I'm not just water. I am the living water. Now look back at John 7. This is a fascinating statement. He says this in verse 38. Carry on. He says, after come to me and drink, watch this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, it says whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said. There's no particular scripture that is cited, but there are so many allusions to this. Back to the Feast of Tabernacles in Isaiah There's text in Ezekiel chapter 37, text in Nehemiah 8 and 9. He doesn't cite any of those because there's so many of them. But look what he says in verse 38. I want you to see this. Whoever believes in me. Now just stop there just for a second. That statement in verse 38, whoever believes in me, is equivalent to what we just walked through. It's equivalent to thirsting, if you will, to coming to Christ, and to drinking from him. In other words, to those who come to the living water, to those who come to the person of Christ, to those who appropriate Christ by faith, those are the ones, in verse 38, who believe in me. In other words, you see him for who he is. In fact, let me just show you that. Look back how this aspect of coming and believing is tied in, if you will, in a parallel form. Look back at chapter 6, verse 37, just for a moment. Chapter 6, verse 37. Do you remember when he said there, all that the Father gives to me, here's the phrase, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But look down at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. So in other words, to come to Christ, 
to look to Christ is synonymous there in verse 40 with believing in him. Look at chapter 6 and verse 44. No one, and he's using this phrasing again in 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone, there's the inclusive thought, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then look what he says in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, what? Believes has eternal life. So, beloved, to thirst and to come to Christ and to drink is synonymous in John's gospel to believe on him. Now, look back at John 7 38. He says, To the one who believes in him, it says, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we're reading that in the ESV, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, literally, in the language, out of his belly is the thought. Out of his belly will flow living water. And I think here, the water that flows to you, the living water, when you come to Christ at salvation, comes into your life, it goes through you, and then it comes, if you will, out of you to become a fountain and a blessing to others. In other words, once you come to Christ, there is not only a desire for him, but there comes a desire in your heart and out of it that wants to be a blessing to other people. Because out of your own heart, out of your own belly, will flow these rivers of living water. In other words, when you receive justification, when you begin to get in that process of sanctification, when you become overwhelmed that he adopted you into his family, then we become a fountain or we become literally a gushing river that blesses other people. In other words, when you experience peace, when you experience joy, when you experience the pardon and forgiveness of all your sins, it comes up out of your heart. You want to be a blessing to other people. And so it was a joy for me to, to see, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, it's probably one of those free moments, but it's a joy for me to see Stacy up here because I remember months back, she, you know, they called me to give a recommendation for her to serve. And I just remember um, it just wasn't easy as a step of faith, maybe as David said, for Scott Brandon to go out there. But you know, there comes a point when the Lord Jesus Christ has touched your heart so much that you want to give back, that you want to give yourself to something in God's kingdom. And I think that's what he's saying here in verse 38. When you believe in him, out of the scripture, out of his heart, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. You know, I recognize this week, I'm sure as, as you did, and I don't mean to slight it or even sound political, all the presidents will do it, but we knew that Obama had pardoned some people, did he not? He pardoned Willie McCovey, who used to play for the San Francisco Giants for some kind of tax evasion, and he probably pardoned some people that really took some people by surprise. He commuted the sentence of some, which means they're in a process to become pardoned. But I thought, it is a small thing to be pardoned by a president. Listen, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, God Almighty takes all your sin, past, present, and future, and he not only commutes your sin or reduces it, he actually pardons you from all of your sin. 
And so we're left in this place, in this gospel invitation. I look back on my own life. He created me to be a thirsty young man at 14. I said, why, how did he do that? I don't know. I was a pretty arrogant dude, you know. But he began to give me just no satisfaction in my life. He began to break down my sin. The Spirit began to woo me. The Spirit began to reveal things that I never had revealed before. And he began to show me my great need. And then he got me to the point where I dropped on my knees at 14. And I was real thirsty because I didn't want to keep living the way I was living. So I dropped on my knees and I confessed him as my Lord and Savior. And as I've told you, I got up from my knees and I knew I was a different man. And I think this is what the Lord is saying is that out of the belly, there's going to come this river, this flowing river. Just think about it, beloved. You get heaven. You get to worship him. You will be sinless one day. You will get a new body one day. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He is the fulfillment, beloved, of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. As Israel drank from the life, from the life-giving spring from the rock, so now Christ is the ever-flowing, never-failing, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching supply of living water. That's who he is. And, and this is, uh, uh, in that sense, it's only through him, right? Now, lest you be confused at all, John the Apostle gives his final comment. Would you look at it in 39? It says, now he said this, that ideal of flowing out of your belly. He said this, it says, about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay? There's the text. He interprets, if you will, the living water of verse 38 that will come in a future outpouring of the Spirit that would come on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit in His fullness would come after our Lord's departure. In fact, look at it again in 39. Those who believed in Him were were to receive. It's, It's future. For as yet, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit had not been given. Now, I want to make sense for you here. Understand that it's not that the Spirit wasn't in work in the Old Testament. The Spirit was, of course, at work in the Old Testament. He came upon particular kings at a time. Certainly, you remember when David sinned, David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast, what? spirit within me the old the spirit was an operation in the old testament but it came on people at particular times for for particular purposes it certainly was spoken of in john chapter 3 that the spirit would convict the spirit redeems people john chapter 3 but there would be coming and we know this an outpouring of the spirit after his departure from earth you say well what do you mean well look back at the phrase in 39 It says the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet, what? Glorified. And whenever you see that phrase, being glorified, it speaks of the cross of Christ. You say, well, where, Scott? Well, look over to John chapter 12, just for a moment. The scripture will interpret scripture. But in John chapter 12, in verse 16, Jesus had made a statement there. And he says in 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Watch this, 12, 16. But when Jesus was, what? Glorified. 
In other words, when Jesus died, that's his glorification. When he rose from the dead, he ascended into glory. It says when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Look down at John chapter 12 and verse 23. It uses that phrase again. Jesus answered them in 1223. The hour has come. In other words, the hour had not come earlier. But in 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. In other words, to die on the cross, uh, go down into the earth, rise again on the third day, and then ascend into glory. You have this language in the scripture. In fact, look over at chapter 13 in verse 31. There it will say very clearly in 13, when he had gone out, Jesus said as he's praying, now the Son of Man Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified. In other words, he was being betrayed that very moment by Judas and he was on to his glorification. So when John says, beloved, as you look back in John chapter 7, that the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified, he is looking ahead to the time when Jesus would be crucified, raised, and ascended. And so here what you have in verse 39, you see it that way? It's a prophecy that as he died, the Spirit would come. He must die, he must raise, he must be glorified, then the Spirit will come. And this is what he kept telling them, right? Look over at John 14 just for a moment. He said this is exactly what was going to happen. In John 14, remember as he was talking about his ensuing death in 1416, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you, but he will be what? Future in you. In other words, as he goes to his death, as he rises from the grave as he ascends into glory, he's going to give him the Spirit of God. He's going to send the paraclete. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Look over at John 14 and verse 26. You know this text. But the Helper, 1426, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you, uh, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I love that. You know, I I think that's a very specific word. We don't have time right now. I can't believe how many people have such a wrong view of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You want a real simple theology of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's role always glorifies who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And here the Holy Spirit's role is going to bring back into remembrance, not your remembrance, not some author's remembrance. He's going to bring back to the apostles who would write the scripture down, All that was true. In other words, he will teach you. He's talking to the apostles all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I think people today say, I have a word from the Lord. Really? It's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit magnifies Christ. The Holy Spirit magnified truth to these men that they might pin the truth, that they might give it to you. Now, this is all future, isn't it? Look at John 16, 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So just look back now at 7. I just want to make sense of that to you. Back in verse 39, he said this out of your heart. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to do that in your heart. 
out of your own heart, out of your own belly is going to flow the rivers of living water. Verse 39, now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And they would receive that in Acts chapter 2, when the church formed, when the Spirit came in power. For as yet, Jesus or John says in 39, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So listen, he presents an analogy of water. Then he gives an application that reveals his person to us. And that application means you've got to respond to him. And what flows in the text down through verse 40 is different responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would pray that you would see him as the living water. You say, well, Scott, what about my son? What about my daughter? What about my grandson? What about my granddaughter? Listen, you pray. You pray that God begins to create a thirst in them. You pray that every form that they pursue in the world will end up and just fizzle in their hand. You pray that they begin to see their own sin and cry out in their need for a Savior. And as we do that, then we pray that the Lord Jesus would open their hearts. But can I just finish with this? Is not he ever so kind to us? Is he not ever wooing people to himself? And he does so here. He's doing so now. Pray tonight, Dom opens the word at Teen Challenge. So thankful for what God's doing in that midst. We have many different outlets. Many young dads and kids will come to Rangers and not know the Lord. There's a growing population. Listen, you get them to the person of Christ. Amen.